0: Okay. I uh, there was a sound I heard this morning that I was like, "Oh, it's one of my favorite sounds." Three little kids right here in the front row just giggling with each other. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss that a bit because Treehouse is gonna be starting up here in about six or seven weeks. If that's something that you're interested in being a part of, let us know. But it's uh, usually during the summer uh, we have uh, just family services, but then during the school year. Most of the school year, we have treehouse. So, but I, I love having the little kids in here and hearing them giggle and just explore. And I love the the nature of having a community that just kind of parents all the kids and just supports all the kids. Uh, that's not related to the message at all. I just wanted to say that um, from the beginning of this series, I have been looking forward to the, doing this particular location, and for a couple of reasons. I mean, uh, for one. It's because it's directly connected to something that we do every week as a congregation. Every week we share something we call communion or the table or the Eucharist. And every week we say something along the lines of, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to death on a cross. Today's location is where that happened. It's where Jesus was betrayed and handed over. Second, I wanted to talk about this location because... I've been there. In 2019, I was able to go to uh, Israel and spent time in Jerusalem. And so today's location happens to be a place that I was able to go to and take pictures of. So Liam, if you'll put up that first picture, this is what we're going to be talking about today. It is the Garden of Gethsemane, or just Gethsemane. It is on a place called the Mount of Olives. I sat and I prayed in a place that Jesus... Presumably sat and prayed, and so I thought that we could look at this location and consider what we might learn from what we see happen at this location. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 26, if you want to go ahead and um, open that up, and it's going to be Matthew 26. If you have a digital Bible, it's easy to find. If you have a physical Bible, it's the very first book in what's called the New Testament or the Newer Testament. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, they are out on the uh, bookshelf out in the lobby. You're welcome to take one, take it home. It's yours, it's free. Uh, otherwise, download one from any of the digital app stores. Uh, today, I'm gonna be reading from the new International Readers version, the NIRV. Uh, the NIRV uh, is uh, a very easy version to read. It also changes some words um, that, that make it kind of a little more modern to make it easier to understand. So. We have a tradition of giving the scriptures our full attention here at the house. One of the ways we do that is by uh, standing as we read the scriptures. If you are able or would like to uh, join me as I read from Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for you to take, for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let us pray. God of every tribe, every tongue, every color, and every nation, we thank you for the scriptures, that we have them, that they have persisted throughout the millennia, and I pray that today, whatever you have for us to learn, pray that it would stick, pray that it would become a part of the framework of our faith, that our faith would become stronger, and that we would become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, all. You can have a seat. Okay, before we get into the context of this passage a little bit and to some of the things that actually happened in the passage, I want to ask the question, was I really praying where Jesus prayed? Is the current garden of Gethsemane really where the garden was? The easy answer is maybe. We don't, we don't really know for sure. Uh, let's put up this next picture of, of the city. Uh, tradition tells us that this is the spot where the red circle is with the little red arrow. Uh, the garden, that garden is directly across the Kidron Valley. You can see how there's a separation between it and that blue uh, rectangle is where the temple is. That is the entire temple mount. The little golden globe you see there is is an Islamic temple that is on the mountain now. But the entire blue thing is the actual mount that is built up that things could be should be built on, and that is that mount goes all the way back to the day of Jesus. It was never destroyed. It was never knocked down. And so this is on the east side of where the temple is. Let's put up the next picture. I took this picture of the temple wall. That's the east temple wall. I took this from the garden. If you've heard of the wailing wall, where many Jews go religiously, to pray, that is on the far other side. And the reason that they go there is because it's the only full wall that's actually accessible, like that you can just walk up to and there's a courtyard that's outside of it. You know, when you look at this, when you s- stand in that place, obviously there wouldn't have been a cement wall with an iron rod gate right there, but you can imagine that it's not that bad of a place to pray from, a place where you're surrounded by trees that you can look up at the temple that in your religion in Judaism that you've been taught and you've known that this is the place that all of God's people are meant to come and worship God in the different times of the year. You can imagine that Jesus is standing there at night, only the moon, illuminating anything. wouldn't have looked like that. You would have just seen a bit of moonlight outlining the line of that temple wall. It's a good story, but we can't be sure. That's the truth. I can romanticize this location, but the truth is, is that we don't know for sure, right? But the Armenian church, the Greek church, the Latin church, and the Russian church all accept that this olive grove is the most likely place of Gethsemane. Well, why? Because in the year 326, about less than 300 years after the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Empress Helena, also later known as Saint Helena, the mother of Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, she goes on what's called a pilgrimage. She goes on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem intentionally to find relics, religious relics, and to locate the holy places that had been mentioned in the Gospels. So on that pilgrimage, with the help of local guides, with people, with Jewish individuals that had roots in Jerusalem throughout the century, this spot was determined to be the most likely. Okay, why isn't that enough for us to know for sure? You know, uh, olive trees live for thousands of years. How hard can it be to find an olive grove near the, uh, the, the temple that's on, on a mount, right? We have to remember that at least two different times between the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and when uh, St. Helena was there, at least two different times, Rome had come through and completely destroyed most of Jerusalem. Josephus, the historian, actually writes that one of those times that Rome intentionally raised, burned, and destroyed all vegetation in the city because they didn't want anyone to have anything to eat or to live off in the city, because they were forcing and pushing all of the Jews out of their city. So we can't be sure, because the trees that are there only date back to, at the oldest, the 12th century, when they had been replanted. But this location, based on St. Helena's uh, pilgrimage, Tradition and consensus of many different branches of the church is what we might call the most probable location. Also, it's important in the life of many Christians and many traditions because according to Acts 1, this is also the location that Jesus ascended to heaven from. You read Acts 1, it says that he's talking to his disciples. He ascends into heaven, and then the angels say, what are you looking for? He will, he will return just as he has left. And then it says, and then they left the Mount of Olives. So let's, let's this, this next photo, let's look at this. So on your left is the garden, on your right is the Temple Mount, and in front of you is a hill that's completely covered with what? Those are tombs. Every one of those boxes has somebody in it. And the reason is because it dates back to the, uh, let's see, the uh, 1700s, when in particular, because of the belief that Jesus would return, some people interpret it as not just in the same way, but to the same place. And because Christians believe that when Christ returns, that the dead in Christ shall rise and see him and be with him. These people wanted to be the first to rise and the first to see him. So they, <laughs> painstakingly, figured out how to be buried basically on the east side of the Kidron Valley, looking, facing the temple. It's pretty, pretty amazing. One sage wrote this about this phenomenon, and they will sprout out of the city like the grass of the field." How beautiful is that? Alright, so other than the historical context of the location and why it's probably, probably the right spot, what can we learn from what we see happen at this location? Right, so one, the first thing that I want to point out, and I've brought this up a number of times just very momentarily at the end of services when we're talking about Communion, the first thing I want to point out is the trust that Jesus had for his Father. Today we sing two different songs connected to the concept of trusting the Father. We sang good plans. We sang a new song, Fear Is Not My Future. Both are pointing us to trust in God the same way that Jesus trusted the Father. And we're not just singing our good intentions. Christianity and singing and worship isn't trying to brainwash ourso- ourselves into unrealistically being optimistic. Why? Because the God that we serve, we know, suffered and died on a cross. No Christian should be under the delusion about whether life includes some disappointment and pain. But when we read the Gospels in the pages of, that leads to this moment in the garden. Over and over, Jesus affirms the positive and healthy relationship that he had with the Father. That God had good plans. That fear was never his motivating emotion. Over and over, Jesus talks about the love that the Father had for him, And then eventually Jesus turns that conversation in the book of John in chapters 15 and 16 about how the Father loves him and turns it and says, and as the Father loves me, the Father loves you. Jesus and the gospel writers want us to know that the relational dynamic between God the Son and God the Father is the same dynamic that can exist between each of us and the Father. Guys, this is huge. This is so important for us to understand. Jesus is telling us the dynamic between him and the Father is what we can experience between us and God. There will be moments that we ask the Father to remove a challenge. I mean, no show of hands, but I'm sure it'd be every single hand. (laughs) You ever ask God to take away a challenge, remove a challenge, resolve a challenge? There's going to be moments where we ask God to remove a challenge, to provide a different option, an alternative path. We may literally say, God, let this cup pass. And he won't. But because of the example of Jesus, we're meant to learn that we can still trust him. Because the situation does not define God's character. And as the scriptures say, and as we sum today, God can turn anything for good. Jesus knew this as he was asking, Jesus knew that even as he was asking, that if the Father did not provide a different path... So think about this. Who might this remind us of elsewhere in the Bible? Somebody being asked to sacrifice something extremely important, hoping that maybe there's going to be an alternative provided. Any, anyone? I'm thinking of Abraham. Abraham. Abraham, waiting and waiting and waiting to have his own son from his wife, right? And then there's the passage that the father says, that God says, I want you to go and offer your own son as a sacrifice. And our minds are blown because God has never asked for human sacrifice before. So this is extremely odd. What in the world is going on? But what we're told is that Abraham walked in faith, believing that the father would offer a solution, would offer something else. And now... He's gone up a mount. Now Jesus is on a mount praying, hoping that the Father will offer a different solution, and maybe we are meant to think, oh of course God will offer a different solution." Imagine you're reading the Gospel for the first time. you don't know how the story ends. There's these videos online, these like video memes, I guess, where a guy standing in the circle or sitting in a circle for a Bible study, and he's never read the Bible before, and people keep on like ruining the story. They keep on going, well, we know, you know, like later Jesus is going to die. And they're like, ah! they don't know any of the stories. But if you're reading this, especially in the early church, you're reading this for the very first time, you don't know any of the story, but you know, you heard about Abraham, you knew that story. And you're like, oh, yeah, God's going to, God's going to make a different way. And then he doesn't. And Jesus still trusts him. Jesus still walks through it. And Jesus still trusts Because he knows that God can take anything and turn it for good. Which brings me to the second thing I see in this story. In the same place that we see Jesus completely trusting his Father, we also see him offering trust to people that keep on breaking it. Hey, guys. Uh, a little bit ago, we were at dinner, and I told you, hey, you know, I'm going to die. One of you is going to betray me. It's the one who drinks from the cup. <laughs> Why don't we go out and pray? I'm under a lot of pressure. Let's go pray. You three, in particular, come with me over here and pray Pray with me. What, you can't, you guys can't stay awake? All right, so just stay awake. I'm going to go pray. You guys stay awake. Pray for me. I, I need I need it. Come back. Guys, what is going on? You didn't drink enough coffee earlier. What's going on? Come back a third time. All right, guys, my betrayer's is right there. It's time to go. We see Jesus trust the Father and then continue to trust people that fail him. Jesus knew that the Father would never fail him While he knew that every one of his followers would, and understood that though everyone else around him would fail, that because of his trust for the Father, he could continue to offer trust to the people that would fail. Those of you that are very, like, math equation-minded, that all made perfect sense to you. We should be realistic. We should be honest and we should be realistic that every person sitting in this room right now, we're all sitting going, oh, not me. Every person in this room will at one point or another fail. Maybe even fail you directly. You may fail them. If we give up on our community, when that happens, When. Everybody say when. When. This isn't an if. It is when we fail each other. If we give up on community and give up on each other when we fail, then we might be missing one of the messages of Jesus in this passage. Because it wasn't the trust Jesus had for his disciples that kept him from kicking them out when they failed. It was the trust Jesus had for his father. That the father would never fail him, that shaped how Jesus treated the disciples when they failed. I think there are plenty of people that are really disappointed in God when what they're really actually upset about is that the friends around them didn't live up to their expectations or needs, which sometimes is fair. They're probably right because we're human and we're flawed. Our friends are not going to be perfect all the time. But Jesus, listen to this one. Jesus never puts the failures of his friends onto his father. Jesus never puts the failures of his friends. He never projects those onto his father. Jesus had hopes for his disciples Jesus, more than once throughout the Gospels, if you read all the accounts of the Gospels, more than once he expressed frustration towards them. But Jesus never lost sight that they were only humans. Jesus didn't withhold what was good from broken humans because they were broken. Instead, because they were broken, Jesus gave them what was good. Maybe it's hard to catch the scope of this, right? Somebody in this room at one point or another has felt like absolutely everyone has betrayed me. Absolutely everyone has abandoned me, right? And then there's Jesus who could actually say, everyone has abandoned me. Everyone he trusted, left him and abandoned him to die, but he didn't die, listen, because of them, he died for them. So what do we do with any of this? How do we practice? How do we participate? Well, there's a little secret that's hidden in the garden. Um, The word Gethsemane means oil press. It's one of the reasons that they felt confident that it was on the Mount of Olives that the Garden of Gethsemane had olive trees. Part of the reason they knew what to be looking for, to be thinking about the history, to asking people of where this might be. The word Gethsemane means oil press. And when Luke tells this same story of Jesus praying in the garden as his disciples keep falling asleep. Luke, being someone that is believed to be, by tradition, had, having been a medical doctor, he says that Jesus, his sweat was like drops of blood. The metaphor here, the illusion that's being pointed at here, the connection is almost sure that Luke is trying to get us to connect the idea that he is in the place called oil press and that he is under so much pressure that his very life is being squeezed out of him. It's one of the best things that we can do, one of the best ways that we can participate with this pra- practice and participate with this passage is for us to remember. Just look around for a second. Just make eye contact with at least one other person that's in this room, ready? Yeah. Everyone here, everyone you meet, every person is under some kind of pressure. Did they slip up? Okay, well olive oil is slippery. It's hard to stand firm when you're standing on oil, when it feels like your very life is being squeezed out the bottom of your feet. It's hard to be perfect and to make all the right decisions when the person in front of you doesn't know all the pressures that you're under. And it's also difficult to have the expectations of the person you're looking at to be perfect when you have not asked what pressures that they currently feel. Very few people that I know or have ever met wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and say to themselves, man, I really hope I let someone down today. I'm going to bullet journal my day, and that's the first thing on my to-do list. As long as I get to the end of the day, I've let someone down, I'll feel like I accomplished something. (laughs) It's not not what anyone does. Most of the people that are currently or have failed us, they're just not doing it on purpose. They're just under a lot of pressure. I've said it before and I'll say it probably a hundred or a thousand more times that one of my favorite things about the scriptures, one of my favorite things about the Bible is that it spends zero time trying to hide how flawed humans are. And even more, it spends zero time trying to hide the flawed humanity of the people in the Bible that we turn into heroes of the faith. The three that were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. John was the one that in the book of John that he wrote, he's always describing himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one that fell asleep, that couldn't stay awake for the one who loved him. Peter. Peter was the one who first said that you are the Messiah, and Jesus said, you are right, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my kingdom. The rock fell asleep. These are the people that could not stay awake for an hour and pray with the one they believed was the answer. But Jesus didn't write them off. And if we are going to be like Jesus, we have to keep in mind that everyone is under pressure. We can give them the same benefit of the doubt that we would want them to give to us when we fail. When we are under pressure, we can turn to the Father. And I think that we're meant to bring our friends along and we're meant to remember while those friends may fail us in our moment of need, the Father has good plans. And His love will never fail. And even the failure of our friends will be turned into something good. Amen? Let's pray. God, some of us have felt under pressure to the point that life was pouring out of our skin. We have felt that there are no more options. There's no possible way that this is still going to end up good. Today, we confess that we sometimes, if not often, believe a lie. And instead, today, we choose to believe the truth. That you can turn all things together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I pray that you help us remember that every moment of every day. That you help us to be pressure-informed, trauma-informed, when we are interacting with other people that are failing, maybe we don't take it so personally. We think of what they might need, how we might be a part of turning something difficult to something good. Amen.